0: Welcome to the Elmer EMC Podcast. We want to support you on your journey with God. So, here's this week's teaching. It's uh, great to be here. It's uh, great to share from God's Word. And thank you to Pastor Brian for giving me this opportunity. He even said I could have two weeks, and I looked at what he assigned me, and I said it's going to take me at least two weeks. Uh, I've done this in one message before, but he had a particular assignment in mind for me, and uh, the net result is, uh, I said, I can't squeeze all that in in one week, and so it's uh, great to be here. Glory and I have been now, what is it now, almost 10 months since we moved to St. Thomas, and uh, we really wish that... uh, COVID hadn't interfered because it's really made it uh, difficult to meet new people, to get to know you. Uh, We feel connected, and yet we wish we could be more connected. And uh, we trust that in better days, uh, we'll have that uh, wonderful opportunity. Uh, As as I begin, I think I'm just going to begin reading our passage for this morning that we'll be focusing on. And that's Revelation chapter 6 the first 11 verses. Uh, most of my thoughts will be concentrated especially on the first two uh, and then the, the the group of the first eight, which is the four horsemen. Uh, but uh, I know I'm going to transgress further because that's just the nature of the book of Revelation uh, because it's it's so much of it is a single context, and the net result is, is if I take something and I cut it off from the rest, it, it really loses its uh, intended message for us. So uh, Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb who is worthy is now about to open the seals on the scroll. And so the uh, John to who received this revelation writes, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to, make people, uh, and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Then the lamb opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come! and looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, O sovereign Lord? holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe. They were told to wait a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. May God's word speak to us and be an encouragement to us. Franklin Delano Roosevelt called it a day that would stand out in infamy. It was December the 7th, 1941, with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And as a result, the United States declared war on Japan. Declarations of war. History seems full of them, doesn't it? And yet in the Bible, we see from the very beginning in Revelation chapter 3 to the conclusion, especially at least up until the end of, of chapter 20, we see nothing but war too. We often describe it as the war of the ages, and we, we generally trace it all the way back to, to the fall with God's great promise there that we'll look in just a moment. Really, there's more than the fall that the Bible has in mind when we look at this great conflict. In fact, uh, there are three rebellions that occur in those opening chapters of of Genesis. The first rebellion is the one that we look at the most. It's the one that we look at as the central one. It's really the beginning of it, and that's what we describe as the fall in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve both eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and and Satan uh, receives the curse, and we receive the consequential curses that come with our rebellion. But in that event was an act of rebellion too, not just by Adam and Eve, but an act of rebellion by Satan. And, uh, you know... Increasingly, Bible commentators and scholars are, are, are tracing and, and understanding that that Satan was opposed to God's plan in creating humanity and the destiny he had in mind for humanity. You, you realize that you know we, we we sang you know just a few moments ago that that uh, those who are overcomers that we will reign with Christ eternally. Well, that was God's intention from the very beginning. God had created heavenly beings. We generally describe them as as angels. And, and their, in, their purpose was to be agents of God's rule in the spiritual realm. And we as human beings were created to be rulers as well, to to demonstrate God's rule and to be his image-bearers in the physical realm. And the satanic rebellion, part of that, was that uh, uh, you know, he wanted to destroy humanity. He had no intention that we should participate in that. Pardon me, I got uh, my, my microphone keeps moving on me. At least it's wiggling on behind my ear. And, and so we, we see this original rebellion, and, and we trace everything on the cross and in the activity of Christ to that rebellion and and rightfully so and yet there were two others that the cross answers and the work of Christ answers. Uh, One is found in Genesis chapter 6. The rebellion of those that are described in that chapter as being the sons of God who saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and, and there was another rebellion there. And the result was that God saw that that, they, that the intentions of man's heart were evil continually, and the flood came as the judgment at that rebellion. And then... The Tower of Babel, we see that as a human rebellion, but that was also a divine rebellion that came as a result of that. Uh, it's, it's other verses, uh, rare little verses that are hidden in our Old Testament that usually our, our eyes glaze over and we don't take note of them. And one stands out in in, uh, De- in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8, and I'll mention more about that next week, where where it says that God basically abandoned the nations after Babel. And he gave them into the control of of spiritual rulers to have custody over them because God was now going to do a new thing by creating the nation of Israel basically out of nothing. God picked an old couple, a wife who was barren, and he was going to create a nation out of that, miraculously, and Israel would be God's portion. But this took place before Israel even was, came into being, that God gave the nations to these others. And they rebelled too, and they led the nations into idolatry. And so we, we see these rebellions, and, and revelation answers to those three rebellions. And so we, we see here that, if we go back to the first one, to the fall, that God says to Adam and Eve, and here he's actually speaking to the serpent, he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The words of this prophecy, this promise that God gave, spoken to the serpent, but ultimately it was a promise to Adam and Eve and to their posterity. Ultimately, this promise is a declaration of war. God is saying to Satan, I'm going to war against you. And one day I'm going to raise up my hero, my, the one who will fight on their behalf, and he is going to crush the serpent's head. In essence, God is saying, this means war. Like Brian quoted last week from, from the words of that song by Petra, this means war and the battle's still raging. War, and though both sides are waging... The victory, victor is sure and the victory secure, but but till the judgment we all must endure, this means war. We see Christ advancing that the Messiah coming in the Gospels. We, we read where, where Jesus says in, in Luke's Gospel that uh, where he's challenged about casting out demons, Jesus says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. And then he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers... And the word can mean conquer. It's a Greek word, nikao, and we'll look at that a little bit further uh, along this morning. When he overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. We understand from Jesus' words that, that Jesus is the conqueror. That Satan is the strong man who has been overcome, who has been vanquished, and that Jesus is is now plundering the kingdom of Satan in order to redeem human beings. He is gathering up those spoils. In 1 John, we read in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work or the devil's work even to Peter at the where Peter gives his great confession you are the Christ the son of the living God Jesus says I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it that's a passage i think we often kind of get backwards we often picture it as though we're the ones that are under siege and that the gates of hell, that hell is attacking us. But really the picture Jesus is painting is hell or Hades is the fortress that's under siege. And we are the attackers. That his church will prevail over those gates. That we will be victors with Christ in it. In fact, Paul goes so far in his letter to the Romans as to say in chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you grasp that? I mean, the original promise in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman that the serpent would be crushed under his feet. And yet Paul now applies that to you and to me and to these first century Roman Christians that Satan will be crushed under their feet. We participate in the victory of Jesus. And so this morning as I look at the Lamb opening the seals and especially devote a lot of attention to the first seal, I want to put forward that Jesus is our conquering hero. I'll just... Make it right up front. Much of what I'm going to say is to demonstrate the conclusion I've come to over the years, that Jesus is the rider on the white horse. He opens a scroll with seven seals. Why seven? I think Brian's already alluded to it in weeks past where he looked at the seven lampstands and the seven churches that seven is a number of completeness. But seven is also a number of judgment. In Leviticus 26, uh, 27, and 28, I have coming up on the screen now, but in the whole passage of verses 14 to 28, Moses, speaking on God's behalf, tells Israel that if if they don't keep the covenant, if they rebel against God, if they don't listen to his warnings and repent, that he will continue to send judgment upon them. And so here he says, if in spite of this you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times times over. In fact, this I will punish you for your sins seven times over is repeated four times in verses 18, 21, 24, and here in verse 28. It's as though John had lifted out of the Old Testament here in Leviticus the the very concept of of four groups of seven to, to structure division that he is relating to God's people in the first century. We, we know of three of those sevens, don't we? They stand out for us. There's the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of God's wrath. But Revelation also mentions seven thunders that John is told, don't write about those things. He was about to write about them, And he was told not to. So there are four sevens in the judgments of Revelation. But this brings me now to the focus of our thoughts for today. I want to read verses 1 and 2 again. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! By the way, That verb can also be translated as go. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown and rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The white rider, who, what is he? Commentators have given a fair array of different opinions, but those opinions basically fall into two groups. And it doesn't matter which approach. Uh, there are different approaches to the book of Revelation. Some approach the book of Revelation by the perspective of, of time. When are these things, or when were these things fulfilled? So some look at Revelation as, as as predicting something that already has been fulfilled in the past. And they're in a preterist school, we call it. And, and, and And then there are those who see Revelation as almost exclusively future. Uh, We're much more familiar with that. There was even a historicist school that that thought that Revelation traced events all through history, and they would see in certain symbols in Revelation maybe the rise of Islam, and others would even identify Napoleon. And generally, we, we kind of wrinkle our faces and go, oh, that seems strange. But, you know, people have approached Revelation from that kind of perspective. Or sometimes we approach Revelation from the perspective of how we take the millennium. Is the millennium, is Jesus going to return after the millennium? Will he return before the millennium? Most of us are, 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 were brought up with that frame of reference. Some understand the millennium as as being more spiritual in nature and representative of the whole church age and representing Jesus' reign now. And they take those perspectives and they bring them, and these conclusions have nothing to do with those. uh, They don't, some kind of lean more in one direction than another, but not always. So even those who were futurists, like I largely am, would still regard a conclusion similar to my own. Well, what are the conclusions? Well, some think it's the Antichrist. Maybe false Christs, false messiahs. Didn't Jesus say, you know, that there will be false Christs and there will be those who say there he is or here he is or here I am and don't listen to them? Some understand it as conquest in general, that from Christ's first coming to his second coming, there will always be conquerors raging across the planet to take control. Especially those who regard parts of Revelation, or sometimes all of it as already fulfilled, they would see and hear the Roman armies that surrounded Jerusalem in AD 70. Those Those are more the, shall we say, more negative dispositions, but then there are other authors, well-respected, from a framework that we're very familiar with, who would see in this writer possibly the advancement of the gospel. Some would even identify it with Jesus himself. As we look at it this morning, this is the frame of reference I'd like you to have. Don't look at Revelation from the perspective of a history book. It'll be easy to see that Revelation fulfills everything the history book tells you about. Don't look at Revelation from the perspective of today's newspaper, Toronto Star, New York Times, Washington Post. You'll probably see a lot of things in the newspaper that you think might fit Revelation too. Instead, I want you to think like a first-century Christian, a first-century Christian who may have been from Jewish background, Gentile background, but one who is steeped in the Old Testament, saturated in the Old Testament because Revelation is saturated with Old Testament allusions and references and quotations and symbols. The frame reference for us ultimately is God's Word and even the Old Testament. Because Revelation is the most Old Testament book of all the books in the New Testament. Again and again, John makes these allusions. And so I'm going to pick out the details and bring out the Old Testament pictures that John had in mind as he described the visions that he saw. We begin with the image of the four riders. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, we call them. Now, keep in mind that these four horsemen are one big picture. We, we have a general tendency to, to look at Revelation as either some kind of a timeline or a chart. Uh, but really, it's, it's, it's pictures. And, but it's not pictures in the sense of an art gallery. Whenever I go to an art gallery and you look at pictures in an art gallery, you go down a hallway or into some large room, and every, every picture is in its own individual frame. And the intent is to look at those pictures individually and to ponder them within their frame. But that's not what Revelation is. It's not a collection of individual pictures. It would be better described as, as, as a mural, as a collage painted on the wall, and that there's a whole collection of pictures all painted together into one great big tapestry, and even though you might look at them individually, they're always in relationship to the other pictures around them to give them perspective and to give them meaning. And so the four horsemen have to be looked at as a group, not just looked at as individual pictures. So where did John get this picture from? He got it from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 8, there are two, or, or Zechariah, there are two references. One is in chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, the other is in chapter 6. Here's from chapter 1. The Old Testament prophet writes: During the night I had a vision. And there before me was a man riding a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, What are these, my lord? The angel who was talking to me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Zechariah is a prophet of Israel after the exile. The people of Judah had begun to return back to their homeland. It was a day of tremendous unrest, of great instability. God's people were very insecure. And the vision here is that God is active in history, that God is behind the scenes, that God is watching the nations and watching over his people, and he assures them that right now is a time of rest and peace. But I want you to notice this about this picture that Zechariah has painted. There are horsemen. They have horses of different colors. There are four of them that are named anyways. But there's a central figure among them. Notice that he begins, he says there was a man among the myrtle trees. Then he says that he calls him an angel. He says, I asked the angel, what does this mean? And then he calls him a man again. And then at the end, he says, the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myr- myrtle trees explained this to me. N- notice, you know, it's like, like the prophet is struggling for words. He first calls him a man, then he calls him an angel, then he calls him a man. Now he calls him the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, the best way to describe it is, these are Old Testament physical appearances of Jehovah himself to his prophet. We might even describe it as an Old Testament appearance of Christ. All the others are sent by this angel of the Lord. They report to him, and they execute his will and his rule among the nations. A similar kind of picture takes place in chapter 6. This time it's a little bit different. He says, I looked up again. And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Now keep in mind, bronze is an Old Testament picture or image of judgment. Okay, The altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle and the temple was made of bronze. That's why it's called the brazen altar altar. It's a place of judgment. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole earth The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses toward the west, and the one with the dappled horses toward the south. The powerful horses went out. They were straining to go throughout the earth. And he, that is, this angel, said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, Look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Just a couple notes about that particular vision. You have the horses again. The, The principal rider appears to be the angel of the Lord once more, especially at the end where he says, my spirit now is at rest, and the word spirit is capitalized. It's a good strong hint. This is the spirit of the Lord that he is talking about. And again, this angel commands all the others and he has sent them out to do his will. And the lead raider is this angel of the Lord. So here in Revelation we have four horsemen. One seems to be the dominant leader of them. If Zechariah's Visions provide a foundation for our understanding. We have the second, third, and fourth horseman. The second one is the red, fiery one. He represents war. He takes peace from the earth. The third one is famine, holding scales. Wheat and barley are affected, but the luxuries of wine and oil are unharmed. The final horseman is a pale horse. Most of our translations say a pale horse. The word that John uses is the word chloros. We get the word chlorine from it, by the way. It actually means green. Actually, the word chlorophyll comes from this word as well. It's this sickly green color. Uh, No wonder we describe it as a pale horse, right? He brings death. It says, death by war and famine and plague and by beasts. Now, we wonder what Christ has to do with this. I mean, Christ conquers by sacrifice and the cross and his resurrection. The power of his sword is the power of the word that comes from his mouth. We, we participate in Christ's victory through worship and prayer and witness. But the powers of evil rebel against the work of Jesus. They will use force and violence to silence the gospel. Sin always carries with it its own destruction. They will reap what they sow. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But ultimately, wherever Christ goes, the world rebels, And these things become evident in our world. In the last of these seals, the one with the pale horse, I think John is drawing his picture from the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to skip a slide here, Alex. In Ezekiel 14, God says that, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments? Sword and famine and wild beasts and plague to kill its men and its animals. Now this is Jerusalem leading into the exile. They had broken God's covenant. They had rebelled against him. They had failed to repent.
1: It's amazing how
0: much these four riders sound, especially these three, sound like Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21. There Jesus spoke about wars and rumors of wars, about nation rising against nation, famines and earthquakes. He said, you will be persecuted and put to death. Some authors actually see in the second and third horsemen allusions to to Christians being persecuted and not just general things in the world. Those are about God's judgments on Jerusalem at that time. Because Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem as a background picture for understanding his return. Judgments then, judgments continue all through history, and judgments will come at the end. And God will use the activities of divine and human rebellion against him so that evil is exposed and destroyed, but also so that people can come to repentance. What comes to my mind are the words of Amos chapter 4. Verses 6 to 12, God says, I'm just summarizing it here. He says, I sent hunger but you didn't repent, you didn't listen to me. I sent drought, you didn't listen. I sent blight on your crops, and, locus, and and I sent locusts. I sent plagues like Egypt. I overthrew you like Sodom and Gomorrah. After each one of these, God says to them, yet you have not returned to me. So finally, God says this time to the ancient people of the northern kingdom of Israel, prepare to meet your God. God allows his judgments to enter our world to lead us to repentance, to lead our world to repentance. We look at our world now. You look at the unrest, the revolutions, the riots, the wars, the uprisings. We're in the midst of a pandemic. What might God be saying to us now? He's calling us to repent. George MacDonald, the Scottish Christian writer who was very influential on C.S. Lewis, said, Every common day, we have to fight the God-denying look of things to believe that, in spite of their look, they are God's and God is in them and working his saving will in them. We have a tendency to look at the news and say, where is God in this? And behind the scenes, there he is. The four horsemen, he rides a white horse. Secondly, this rider holds a bow. Just want to take note of a couple of verses. In Psalm 45, verses 4 to 6, we read this. In your Majesty, a David or whoever the psalmist is is speaking about God. In your Majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows—oh, that implies a bow, doesn't it? Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Notice here God is riding forth. Notice here God is carrying a bow. Notice here that God is kind of spoken of as two separate people. Psalm 45 is a really important psalm. We usually overlook it. We don't always understand its context. Psalm 45 is a coronation psalm and a wedding psalm put together. It's about the king who sends forth his hero into battle. Lo and behold, the king himself, or the king's son, is the one who's going into battle. Maybe think of Psalm 2. God sits on his throne, and the nations are raging against God on his throne and against his son. And so the son rides forth in conquest. But it's also a wedding song, because in this conquest, he gains a bride, and she's mentioned quite extensively in the latter half of this psalm. It's a messianic psalm. We come to understand it that way eventually. And it's about the victory of the Messiah and his bride. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the book of Revelation? The first half is very much about the victory of the hero, of the the conquering one, the victorious one who goes into battle. But the latter half of Revelation is quite extensively about the bride, isn't it? Here we see God's Messiah defeating his enemies and winning his bride. Just one second reference about the bow. This is in the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Here in a number of places in chapter 3, these things are said. It says, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Peron. It says, plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps almost like they were other riders. Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? This is describing God. It says, you uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. I think the allusions are pretty obvious about God being involved like this. Then there's the color white, a white horse. The color white appears a lot in the book of Revelation. It's used again and again and again. I mean, this is what I have on the screen really is is not a complete or detailed listing of it, but Christ is described in white. The overcomers in the letters receive a white stone and white robes. The 24 elders in chapters 4 and 5 are dressed in white. Here we see the rider on a white horse. The martyrs in chapter 6 that we read at the beginning in verse 11, the martyrs are clothed in white. The, the multitude that no one could number from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation have white robes. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The angels with the seven bowls are dressed in white. The bride has made herself ready and she is dressed in, in white, it, it, it's, at least it's implied, because she has made herself ready, and she's dressed in fine linen, and this white, fine linen speaks of the righteousness, righteous deeds of the saints. Chapter 19, Christ and his armies are clothed in white, and then God's throne is described as a great white throne. What I want you to note about the use of the color white is everywhere else in the book of Revelation, white is described is used to describe that which is heavenly, that which is holy, that which is righteous. It's never used to describe the clearly identified pictures of the dragon or the beast or Babylon, which are always in colors of red. The, the implication is that if we a tribe, attribute too negative an understanding on this writer, we're kind of going against the grain of the book. And then he's given a crown. I've made reference to this crown already, where Jesus is the hero who defeats the strong man and says he conquers him. We're getting into victory and conquest here. The crown that's used, the word that's used for it, is the word Stephanos. It means a victor's crown. The victor's crown is promised to the faithful at Smyrna, who are overcomers. To those who are faithful at Philadelphia, they're commanded to persevere so that no one can take away their Stephanos. Their victor's crown. It's interesting that the 24 elders before the throne, they surrender their victor's crowns in worship to the one who sits on the throne. Here the rider is given a victor's crown. The implication is that he is worthy. He has earned this crown. He's not stolen it or taken it or usurped it in any way. There's only one negative use, and that's in chapter 9, where the demon locusts that are freed from the abyss, it says that they wear something like a crown of gold. And the word that's translated crown is a victor's crown, but the key word, I think, is like. It isn't a real victor's crown. It looks like a victor's crown, but it isn't the real thing. They've usurped it. They're pretenders. They seek to subjugate the nations, not to liberate them like Christ does. And then, in chapter 14, there is one who is described as being like one like a son of man, probably a reference to Christ again, seated on a cloud wearing a golden victor's crown, ready to harvest, to gather his people in. By the way, there is a second word for crown used in Revelation. It only occurs three times. It's the word diadem, or the Greek word is diadema. It's, first of all, we see it worn by the dragon and by the beast. The dragon has seven of them. The beast wears ten crowns on on his horns. But then we read of Christ in chapter 19 that he the faithful and true witness, the king of kings and the lord of lords, on his white horse, he has many crowns on his head. In other words, they're crowns beyond counting. Why? Because he has conquered them all and he has claimed them all for himself. At the end, the dragon no longer has a crown. At the end, the beast no longer has any crowns. For Jesus, the victor, is the rightful owner of all of them. And then we're told that he is conquering and is on a mission of conquest. This brings us to those wonderful words about victory. In the Greek language used here in the book of Revelation, there are different words in the same family that are used. It talks about victors or overcomers. It's the word Nikos. Victory. We pronounce it Nike, like the shoes. That's what the word Nike means, by the way. Nike. Or Nika'o means to conquer. Throughout the New Testament, this word is used, but it's very, very prominent in the books of John, the letters of John, especially First John and here in Revelation. These three words combined are used 15 times in Revelation. 13 with reference to Christ and his followers. I mean, every one of the seven letters, to him who overcomes, I will give, that's from this family of words. Where every time it says that, you know, worthy is the lamb because he has gained the victory, it's this family of words. It's only used twice with reference to the beast, but later in the book. It's reused of him in terms of the beast achieving a victory over the two witnesses in chapter 11. And then in chapter 13 about the beast, we know of him very clearly there. He's only named in chapter 11. And there in chapter 13, it talks about him achieving his victory over those who would not receive his mark. Other than those two references to the beast, all the others refer to Christ's victory or the victory that we, his saints, obtain and share in Jesus Christ. Whenever you look at a verse, and here, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, come immediately after chapter 5. Usually when something comes up and you're trying to connect it, you always go to what has come first. You haven't read what follows. You don't know that yet. John's hearers, when they heard the book of Revelation read in their churches for the very first time, they would have connected these verses about the rider being a conqueror with the verse that preceded it. And so in chapter 5, verse 5, we read, Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look, the lamb from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room when the cross was impending upon them, I've told you these things I keep losing my microphone. I'm going to switch ears. There we go. He says, "I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, phlipsis, tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." Same family of words. I've conquered the world. I'm victorious over the world. We read these things of sword and famine, peril. Notice what Paul says in Romans. Romans 8, verses 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, same family of words, through him who loved us. There's a great old hymn. I don't think it's sung very often anymore. Maybe my memory of it is a childhood memory. I'm not sure. But somehow it stuck because it's still there. I had to look it up on the internet, find the words once again, because our new hymn books don't have it. It reads like this, or should I sing it? It goes like this. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train? Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumph over pain. Who patient bears his cross below, he follows in his train. Good Irish song. Tune anyways. God made this promise to his son, the Messiah, Jesus in Psalm 2. Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You rule them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just keep in mind that reference to ruling with a scepter of iron or rod of iron, it's repeated throughout the book of Revelation. A number of times. The connection to this psalm is very obvious. That is what Jesus is doing in this world today. He's claiming the nations as his own. Psalm 82 says the same thing. Psalm 82 verse 8. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. Here's a little tidbit for you. The word that's translated, rise up, in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word for, new, for resurrection in the New Testament. Jesus, the risen one, has conquered. The nations belong to him. In Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, we see the final shout of victory. It says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Handel's Messiah uses those words. It's part of the hallelujah chorus. So what are some conclusions we can draw this morning? That's about much more than my claiming and concluding that Jesus is pictured in this white rider. Here's what we can conclude. First of all, Jesus is at work in our world. He's at work behind the scenes. He's at work behind the headlines. He's at work to advance his victory and his kingdom and his mission. Don't let the media disillusion you, distract you. You see wars and rumors of wars, you know Jesus is at work somewhere because this world is opposing him. Whenever you see things in the media, whenever you suffer pain and disappointment, just remember these words from C.S. Lewis, pain insists on being attended to, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus is calling our world to repentance. Jesus is on a mission to of conquest, to destroy the works of the devil, to liberate every person and nation with his love and his salvation. I like to just give a quick illustration at this point. The nation of Iran appears in the news an awful lot, doesn't it? You know, their nuclear aspirations their rebellions, their riots, the persecution of believers, their threatening war against Israel. We wonder what's going on in the Middle East. Well, Jesus is at work, and a false religion is rebelling because he's going to conquer, and it doesn't want him to conquer. Do you realize what's happening in Iran today? Thousands are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I keep coming across reports to the extent now that some are suggesting that even though the government statistics claim that 99% of the people in Iran are Muslim, there are some that are pointing out as a result of anonymous polling rather than state polling that would put people under threat anonymous internet polling that up to 60% of the people in Iran no longer claim to be Muslim. They're keeping it quiet. Some are atheists, some are other religions, Baha'i or Zoroastrian. There's a growing number of Christians, but evil sows the seeds of its own destruction. And people have seen their government in action And they're disillusioned with a faith that swings the sword instead of puts its trust in a victor who wins by a cross and a resurrection. Jesus is at work in our worlds. Jesus' great commission is his mission of conquest, and we participate in that. We not only are the beneficiaries of it, we bear our testimony and we proclaim his victory so that others can trust in the victorious Jesus as well. But let's make it personal now. Jesus is pursuing you. He wants to conquer your heart with his love. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus is pursuing you with that love, and when you put your trust in him, when you say yes to him, You win. You don't lose. You win. He gives you eternal life. He washes away your sins. He transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. You become a victor with him because you share in his victory, rising again over death through his cross. Jesus is our conquering hero. And like Paul says in Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We already sang it this morning. Every high thing shall come down. Every stronghold will be broken. You wear the victory's crown. You overcome, Jesus. You overcome. Little wonder. At the heart cry of the church, at the end of the book of Revelation is this. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we've covered a lot of ground. Your word is rich. Your word is true. What we see in this world might be discouraging. It might even be deceiving. But the truth is that Jesus is the victor. Jesus wears the crown. And Jesus is advancing his victory in his world today. It belongs to him by right. He has won the victory. He deserves it all. Jesus, we bow down before you this morning. And we acknowledge you as the victor, as the king of our hearts. We acknowledge that we who trust in you, Jesus, we are your bride in the world today. And that you are at work to win many more to be part of your glorious bride. Make us ready for your coming, Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that maybe there's someone listening in on the internet today. We pray, Lord, that they would be drawn to Jesus, that they would put their trust in Jesus, that they would know by experience the freedom that comes, that they are victors over sin, victors over the grave, that there's no more condemnation in Christ that we are victors in him. Take us out from this place, Father. May we go out with confidence. May we go out with the assurance that in this world we will have trouble, but we can take heart. For Jesus has conquered the world. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We invite you to follow Jesus with us and join us on mission with him. We'd love for you to connect with us through our website, worshipataemc.com, or on Facebook. Just search for Aylmer EMC.